This is the commercial property show, Australia. Show number 58. But these days, yeah, I tend to look at how much down, how much back, how much time, how much risk. So answering those four key things, and then there's a fifth one, how much hassle. That's a big one. Yeah, yeah. Hey, CP community. Thank you for joining me again today. My name is Andrew Bean, and i got a killer episode up for you today pretty much one of my favorite ones about how to get things done with JVs. And here it is. Matt Jones from the Property Resource Shop joins me on this week's episode of the Commercial Property Show, and he is explaining how he has turned a $375,000 purchase of an industrial shed into $220,000 profit in 13 months with no money down using JVs. Absolutely awesome way of doing it. Ripper, ripper show. Matt's a wealth of knowledge. I really suggest you go check out his stuff because his stuff's awesome. If you haven't checked it out already, and I know a lot of you already have because I've been crazy busy with all the consultation calls, but I've opened up a whole bunch of new services in my commercial consulting business, all aimed at helping you guys, the investors and other professionals, not only just getting the job done, but educating yourself along the way. They're all about educating you as the investor so you can do it for yourself as well. Whether that's crunching the numbers on a commercial property, figuring out the best market or location or area that you want to purchase in, giving you advice on a specific deal that you're looking at to making sure it stacks up, to even doing the due diligence for you and educating you how we actually do due diligence on commercial property. All of these services are geared at helping you, the investor, educate yourself and not breaking the bank. Or if you're just looking how to add value to your property and you can't figure out yourself and you need someone to look over your property to figure out how you can force crazy value onto that property. If you want to check out what I'm doing, go to www.andrewbean.com.au. Book in a free consultation. I only have time for a certain amount of consultation calls per week and they seem to be booking up very, very fast each week. So if if you can't get in for a little while, I'm sorry about that. But if you want to check it out, go to www.andrewbean.com.au. My next guest is the founder of the Property Resource Shop and the Ultimate Property Hub. He also runs the largest property meetup group in Brisbane. It's Matt Jones. How are you, mate? Very well. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on today. Mate, you are very welcome. It's going to be a really fun chat. For the listeners who don't know you already, can you just give us a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. I used to be a theatre technician, so I worked as a lighting technician in theatre many years ago. I did that for about 15 years, and that was kind of my career as such. That was a fantastic job. Got to travel around and be really creative and work with some awesome people. But like most, I kind of got a bit jaded with the whole nine-to-five pay packet thing, four weeks annual leave. And so, yeah, I started looking for something else, and that's when property came into my world. I was 33 at the time, 
I pretty much just quit my job as soon as I read a book, which is very naive at the time, looking back on it. <laughs> I decided to get a transition job, which was being a postie. And that was a bit of a, a boyhood dream of mine to cruise around on a CT-110 delivering mail in the suburbs of Brisbane. I thought it'd be a lot of fun, but it actually was really hard work. It, <laughs> it sucked. Did that for a couple of years. And that just helped me to transition away. And I think it's a really good point to note, just being able to, be, to go full-time property, you need to have a plan. I definitely didn't have one at the time. But yeah, the posty thing helped me go from working 70 or 80 hours a week with a high level kind of stressful job managing a lot of people to something that was very simple cut my wage in half but gave me some headspace to work out like how do I do this thing I got into a mentorship program at the time um, so I was sort of doing the posty work in the morning sort of get up at five deliver the mail come home at sort of one and then start learning how to be a, a property investor or developer and then slotted a couple of renos in there at the same time yeah that posty thing lasted a couple of years so that was between 2005 and 2007 and then I continued on from there. So got into the results program with Steve McKnight based in Melbourne. Ended up doing some one-on-one -on -one mentoring with Steve, which was fantastic. And yeah, that was, I guess, the platform that I jumped off from a few years from there to sort of get my teeth into what I actually wanted to achieve. It goes on from there. Fantastic, mate. I'm guessing that was probably Steve's book that got you on the journey. Yeah, it was. I hadn't read anything about property. I specifically remember... Being at Brisbane Airport in the news agent there looking for something to read on the way down to a trip to Melbourne and Steve's book popped out. I think it had been out for a few years by then, so it wasn't anything yeah. new. I think it was just that I was ready to see it. That was the difference. I'd really had enough of the nine to five and I just thought there must be a different way to do this. And I just hadn't been exposed to it before and my eyes were open to it. And yeah, picked up the book, read it from cover to cover. And just went, bingo, I'm going to be a property investor. <laughs> and it just made sense. It just made sense. It was the one of his early ones. So it was all about positive cash flow and yeah. leaving your job. And so that's where my headspace was at. There's a lot of twists and turns since then, but that was the impetus to it and really got me going. And just the way he explained things, I found it really easy to understand and, and inspired me to sort of take the leap. Yeah, it's a fantastic book that. So from going from a postie to a property developer is a pretty cool story. Like how did you first cut your teeth with property development? Because just investing in real estate is a whole different ballgame to actually taking on a property development. Yeah, well, I started small. I just started with quick flip renos because that's really yeah. all I could get my head around at the time. I was sort of learning the ropes through the program for about 18 months. And then I think about six months in, I bought my first property and that was with a JV, which I didn't even know. It was called the JV back then. Like I was on 30 grand a year, so the banks weren't giving me any money. So I had to bring in a partner to help service the loan and bring in some cash to the deal. And it was just, yeah, literally a, a little two-bed post-war home in Stafford, about five k's out of Brisbane, and just did a quick flip. Although I think it took us like eight months, I think. It was really long and slow and did it all the wrong way. But yeah, it was just, I learned a lot doing that at the time and realised it was a lot of work doing the renos and trying to wear all the hats and be on the tools thinking I was saving money. Did a couple of those during the program and didn't really make a whole lot of money, but learned a hell of a lot and realised that I had to sort of expand into other strategies if I was going to turn this into any sort of wealth creation plan because I was really only earning as much as I was back in the theatre days, which was about 60k a year, which sounds like a pittance these days. But back then it felt like it was a pretty good wage, but I was doing a hell of a lot more work, taking a lot more risk doing projects like renovation projects as opposed to just showing up to work and getting paid 
Yeah, so there was a point there where I kind of had a bit of a snap point that if I'm going to do this properly, I need to move into more lucrative strategies and, and then it kind of started building from there. Yeah, awesome. So, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what Steve's course outlines. Obviously, it's not 100% property development. Is it just renovation mm. and kind of get cash flow? It was really broad, actually. It was great for starting out on because it covered renovation, subdivision, a little bit of development, joint venture. It was just a little bit of everything sprinkled in there. And that was great for me at the time because I had no knowledge. I just needed to get an overview of the different strategies so that I could find one that I resonated with. That ended up being subdivision, actually. I don't know, it just clicked for me. It just made a lot of sense. The development side, we're definitely joint venturing in developments, but it doesn't really excite me as much as it does for others. So started replicating little one into two lot subdivisions where there might have been a reno component and selling those off. And that started to bring in good chunks of income then. And it was a strategy where we could manage multiple sites at once. And that's pretty much where I left the posty job a couple of years in. I'd sort of realised, or with the first subdivision, actually, I think I made about 50K. Mm. And that was more than I was earning as a posty. I thought, okay, well, if I just do one of these a year, I don't need to work. And so that's kind of where I left full-time work and haven't been back since. But the strategies have kind of evolved a bit more since then. I can personally vouch for your training courses because I've done them. Um, They're fantastic. So if anyone's thinking oh, cool. about taking on any kind of development or a subdivision or JV, very, very highly recommended. It's all from my own experience and just came from doing the deals myself and people asking me, what does this cost? What does that cost? How do you do this? And I ended up just putting together something that was consumable and easy for people to get their head around. You know, it's very much a start to finish kind of process yeah. in layman's terms, not too complicated and yeah, definitely a way to, to get the ball rolling. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the kind of courses that I came across like very, very early on in my journey. And then I kind of transitioned to, well, if cash flow is the actual ultimate goal, then why don't we go for cash flow first? And I, then I found the vehicle of being commercial property has better cash flow. And that's when I kind of moved my yep. education towards that kind of strategy. Yeah. Haven't done a lot of commercial, just started to do it more recently. You quite, quite enjoy it, actually. There's less emotion yeah. in it. It's all about the numbers. So, yeah, I'd like to do more of it now. I've had a bit of a taste of it. But, yeah, it's been a lot of resi leading up to this point. But I think you get to a point where, for us anyway, it becomes about lifestyle and doing projects that dovetail in with that rather than the other way around. And that's where joint venturing for us is... I mean, it's been there from the very beginning, but now we've kind of flipped it around the other way where we become the funding partners. We'll cool. get a bit more choice so that we can you know, have a life along the way. That's why we got into it in the first place, you know, which was to buy time back, have an experience and not just work your butt off till you're 65, like actually enjoy the ride. So I find joint venturing is very flexible in that sense where you can choose whether you want to be the person on the ground or be the person funding it or have a little bit of both to create cash flow and the long-term wealth to have a life. Yeah, that's awesome, mate. What were some of the biggest roadblocks that you kind of faced transitioning from being an employee to being a self-employed property developer? The first thing for me was wanted to do everything myself. So I was previously in the theatre job, I'd, I'd be managing 30 or 40 staff and different venues, which was great. But once I left that, I was kind of like, I just want to do this myself. I don't want to talk to anyone. Don't want to do it. You know, I was very lone soldier. Yeah. <laughs> and that was really hard road doing it that way. But that was just my innate personality at the time. And so I had to do a lot of personal growth to work through that. And that was probably the biggest thing I did along the way. And I remember Steve McKnight saying it early on. He just said, mate, 
you've got a you know, personal development goes hand in hand with your property journey. And at the time I was like, yeah, whatever, Steve, just show me the numbers, show me the deals. You know, I just want to get this thing rolling. You know, I feel confident enough in myself. And so I wasn't listening. It took me a few years to actually come back to that and realize I'm the one holding myself back around my own self-belief, around my own self-worth. I went on a bit of a mission to explore that a bit, did some courses and got a coach. And at the time I remember thinking, okay, that's what I need to do. I'll do a personal development course and tick that box and everything will be sweet. Once I'd done that, I kind of realized, wow, this is a lifelong journey in personal development. You're just always on that journey. So these yeah. days it's more about embracing that, seeing that it's a long-term approach. Yeah, I think firstly, sabotaging myself in the beginning was probably the key mm. thing I had to get over. And then from there, it was about cash flow. So it's great to be flipping property, but when you don't have another income stream, you need to do it in a different way so that you haven't got years or you know, long periods between paydays. Yep. So yeah, that's where we had to, instead of flipping, we had to hold property and sell off part of the project, one into two subdivision, a simple example, to sell off the back block, keep the front house, pay down the debt, and then you got a trickle feed of income. The cash flow side of things was another wake up call. It was like, okay, well, how are we going to get this time back? Because we're doing lots of deals or we're working really hard. We're making lots of money. This is great. But that wasn't the plan. The plan was to replace the income. It just meant you got to keep tweaking along the way as you learn about what you want. In the beginning, it was just get in and do it and be gung ho and buy 10 houses and we'll be right. But I think it's more about stepping back and going, okay, well, why am I doing this? What sort of money do I want? Chunks of cash or income? And then build the strategy from there that defines the types of sites and strategies that you work on rather than the other way around, which is kind of how I had it. And I think a lot of people do that as well. They just kind of dive in, which is okay. You just got to explore the strategies and see what works for you. But then you kind of got to step back and go, okay, what's the bigger picture here? What does all this mean? What do I want to use it for? And then it becomes more motivating because you're getting up in the morning working towards a more personal goal rather than just having more money in the bank. Yeah, I love that, mate. That's awesome. So, mate, today we're going to have a chat to you about pretty much your commercial journey, kind of why you actually moved into doing some industrial warehouse projects and, you know, your thoughts and everything that's come along the way. Yep. So what actually yeah. made you kind of go, hang on, there's another asset class here that I could be dabbling in. Let's do this. It kind of happened pretty organically. Like, I didn't go searching for it. Mm. I knew it was always there and I'd seen others do it and I knew, okay, that's going to be something I'll try down the track. Because I knew there was more capital required, more costs. I didn't find the strategy too difficult to grasp. It was kind of similar with feasibilities that I was doing in other projects, you know, with a few little differences. But it actually came to me. So through my network and joint ventures that I had done with others, someone brought me the deal and needed the funding for it. So I thought, okay, this is a good opportunity to, one, make some money, joint venture with this person who I respected, and had done larger projects than me before. So I knew I could learn from this person and it didn't take a lot of time for me, which was a big thing at the moment where I'm always guarded of my time because we've mm. built up this life. And so I won't just do deals because of the money. I mean, of course you do it for the money, but it's got to be another reason as well. How does it get me closer to my goals? And this one did because yeah, it was just funding it, do a whole lot. I got to learn the process and yeah, I quite enjoyed it actually moving into that industrial shed space, which was, it just made a lot of sense. It was really simple with the numbers, no emotion involved. There's the numbers, yeah. there's the yield. Let's go and do it. We had a clear strategy on what we were doing, had multiple exit points with it. 
so I just didn't see any real risk in getting involved. Yeah, that's why I love commercial property because it's very, very easy to calculate. If the numbers mm-hmm. don't stack up, yeah, then you just don't do it and you move on, but also value the property. But with residential, there's a more of an emotion aspect to it and it's a lot yep. harder to get 100% to the dollar figure of what it will mm-hmm. actually be sold for. Commercial is actually easier after you get your head around the actual concept of it. That's right. When you're selling a house or a block of land, you never know the number it's going to be sold for until it's done Mm. in hindsight. So you're always trying to make this educated guess and trying to be conservative and not overshoot it and predict what's going to happen in the market, which no one knows until it happens. It's all in hindsight. So yeah, you're right. It's a little bit trickier. And then coming to commercial, it's like, well, there's the price, mate. Take it or leave it. You know, there's a little bit of negotiation there, but it all comes back to what you can rent it for, how many square meters there are. And that's where we saw this project as easy to work out. We were just effectively doubling the square meterage. That was the value add in the end. And then we could rent it out at a higher rate. And obviously that increased the value of the property as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you're new to the podcast, commercial property is actually valued based off the the rental income. So if you increase the rental income, then you've increased the value. It's a pretty simple formula. (laughs) and It's really nice when you get it right too. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's a little bit to get your head around, like you say in the beginning, just with those numbers, but it's really just a couple of formulas like anything else. And then you can start applying it and you can just be looking up deals on realcommercial.com and, and just crunching the numbers on what things are worth, what they're renting for. So if you bought that property at that price and you rented it for that amount, okay, what's the yield? What's the cash on cash return? What's the project costs? And yeah, it's not hard to educate yourself in that space. But I think with anything, you've got to manufacture. I'm not a big believer in just waiting for the market to do it for you. You've got to bring some value to the site. Otherwise, you're just kind of buying something and hoping it goes up or you know, being satisfied with a, a small income stream. Yeah, and that's where the commercial shed was great, where it was, you know, it was in a complex where there was 20 other units and some of them had mezzanine levels, some of them didn't. So we just picked the one that didn't. You could forecast the numbers because you could see what the other units were selling for that had the mezzanine levels or the different square meterages and what they were renting for. It was kind of there before you started. If we do this, we get that because it's yeah. the proof's already in the pudding. So it was really easy to look at it and go, yeah, this will make money every day of the week. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's no speculation in commercial property, is there? A professional commercial property investor comes in with mm. a plan and they don't wait for the market to make them. They're forcing mm. a value onto that property by way of creating a strategy of increasing the income. And it's very, very calculated. Mm. And then you're not saying, okay, well, we bought it at a six cap. We could probably sell it at a five and a half cap. No, you just basically use the exactly the same capitalization rate, but now with the increased yep. income. It's a beautiful formula. Yeah, yeah. And like this one that we were looking at, they actually gave that to us. You know, you go, oh, really? Because they, they were still building it or the titles were still coming through. So they had the list of the sales. Like I've still got it on file. It's just a list of all the units. There's 20 of them. And they all, some have had mezzanines, like I said, some didn't. Some had different square meters, but you just work it out. We just picked the ugly duckling in there, which was the smallest one that didn't have the square meterage. And we knew we could add the square meterage and then the end result was already happening in the complex. So it's kind of like, well, we should have actually done four of them at the time. Yeah. I, went, yeah, I, I was right. working with yeah. Brendan. I said, we should get a few more of these, but we only got this one because we could get it at a discount because it was kind of the one that most people weren't interested in. It was kind of tucked down the back. It was the smaller one. So the developer was happy to let it go a bit cheaper. And that's kind of how we 
been trained to do things is buy under market value. In hindsight, we probably should have bought three or four of them. They all would have done really well, given the market that we had in that time frame as well. But yeah, we just didn't cross over in our rules of, you know, always buy with a bit of a discount. Yeah, fair enough. So I actually thought this was a refurbishment. So it was a brand new development and obviously you bought it vacant possession. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yep. And then you put in a tenant and that was the value add or did you add a mezzanine or how did you increase the net livable area? So we took it over and immediately started construction or we had to get DA first to get that approved, putting the mezzanine level in. So it was a 70 square meter industrial shed and we put in, I think it was about 55 square meters of mezzanine. So like an office space upstairs and the stairs going up to it, toilet shower upstairs became like a carpeted office space and downstairs was more like a just a concrete floor. So it was quite versatile. And in fact, when we had it done, even the tradies that were coming in, they were kind of saying, geez, I'd love to have this sort of space, you know, lots of height downstairs to do whatever they're doing. And then upstairs was their office space. So yeah, effectively adding another 55 square meters and then putting the tenant in after yep. that. So instead of renting it for, I think it would have been worth about 20 grand a year, we were renting it for 33 after the mezzanine level was put in. And that cost about, I think it was about 75K to install that mezzanine. A far better result if we were going to hold it or sell it. And that was actually the dilemma halfway through the property. I wanted to hold it because I was looking to accumulate more assets, whereas the JV partner wanted to sell it. In the end, we did sell it because it was just a no-brainer. We could either get a 20K passive income between the two of us or make a, it was ended up being a $220,000 profit. So I knew we could do more with that 220K in other deals than we could just sitting on that trickle feed of income coming in. Yeah, no doubt. So what was the actual purchase price of this property? 275 plus GST. I think it was listed for 320 and then we sold it for 615 once the mezzanine was done and the tenant was in there. And that all happened in about a 15-month settlement to settlement, I think. So a little bit over 12 months. Yeah, great. And where was the property located? In Pinkenbar, so just near Brisbane Airport. Yeah, nice. Excellent. It's a pretty industrial sort of area, but yeah, handy to the M1 freeway, handy to the airport. Just picked it up a bit cheaper because it was slow at the time, so it was good timing. Like The developer was struggling to get the first few away so we're oh, just okay. in there at the right yep. time i think that's why he's happy to give a discount but then probably two weeks after that he started moving the other stock and then he wasn't open to any more discounts so we just yep. went okay we'll just stick yep. with the one we got yeah because the development the money that you make your profit is actually in the end isn't it yeah if you're going to exit with selling it you don't get paid until that's all done really <laughs> it was all no money down with that one too so it didn't actually cost us anything during the project because we ended up getting 100 percent funding from the bank to do that and then we brought in a money partner to cover the actual costs of the mezzanine and the council approval so it didn't actually cost us anything to add that value and then then we just refinanced at the end of it paid out the money partner and then we ended up selling anyway so it was definitely a good strategy to hold it nothing to be sneezed at 20k a year that was okay but it was just that the market had increased as well it was a bit of a no-brainer just thought, let's just take this we've done well and move on to something else. And what was the market cap rate that you're buying it at? It was listed at 320, and then we bought it for 275. Okay, fair enough. So usually yeah. a cap rate's done with a percentage. So it could probably would have been around a six plus percent in that particular area, or it could be a little bit sharper. Being a new development, I guess I'd have to run the numbers to actually calculate it. Yeah, it was kind of the cheapest one in the lot. There was larger ones, and others had a bit more exposure. So, yeah, it was pretty much the cheapest one in the block of 20. 
it's just kind of stacked because you see the rest of the development happening. But I guess the biggest risk was knowing that you'd get a tenant in there. And once mm. you'd added the value, so you're in it for 375 pretty much after we'd purchased it, spent the money on it. And then, okay, now we need a tenant. But that seemed to happen pretty quick. You know, we had a few people interested, ended up doing a, cutting a deal. I think we gave them three months rent free to get them in there. They were really happy. I think it was a three-year lease. They wanted it longer, but we decided to just sell it in the end anyway, just to realize that gain. And so what were the biggest differences you found between doing like this in a commercial property as opposed to doing it in a, a residential kind of property? Not a whole lot of difference because we flipped it. So yep. we had done a fair bit of that before with, with subdivision. I'm involved in a 50-lot subdivision at the moment. It's similar sort of process. You're, you're adding value. You're going through council to get approvals. Still plenty of consultants involved to get it done. Engineers, building certifiers, similar with subdivision where you, you need a town planner, a surveyor, I suppose, extra. But I didn't find it too different with the strategies. But yeah, there's so many strategies to compare it to, you know, whether you're doing mm-hmm. renovations or subdivisions or developments, options or holding or whatever. I guess I just applied what I knew from Resi into this. So maybe I, I was a little bit unconventional in the way I went about it. Wasn't focused as much on on yields. We're basically doing a renovation here. We're just adding yeah. a mezzanine. Yeah. It's just that it's a concrete slab instead of kitchens and bathrooms. But essentially, it was the square meterage that was the key, knowing that, okay, well, this is value based on how many square meters, and we're adding another 55 of them. So it just directly translates to the end, end yeah. result. It was probably a bit simpler in that sense where – there's no complex feasibilities to go with it. Usually the FISA <laughs> for the resi is a lot more in it because you've got so many variables and you want to know that those numbers are right, whereas commercial was just kind of three or four numbers that you're working against. Yeah, that's awesome. If you guys are struggling to run the numbers on commercial property or worried about, you know, is this deal going to stack up because of rising interest rates and inflation, or, you know, you're trying to figure out how much value you can add to your commercial property, I've created a free resource on my new website at www.andrewbean.com.au. It's the free DIY cash flow kit, totally free comes with three spreadsheets to give you the ability to be able to run the numbers on commercial property easily without any mistakes. I also created the inflation risk analyzer. So you put in all of your details of your investment and it will show you how high your interest rates will have to go up for you to be underwater. Trust me, this is something that you need to be double checking before you invest in a property. So this gives you the insight to be able to check how high interest rates can go before you would actually be underwater and it will be a negatively geared investment, which is not what we want to be doing in commercial property. The last spreadsheet is a value add calculator. This gives you the opportunity to be able to calculate how much increased equity you can have on the property by forcing value, by forcing income onto the property. This is a really cool spreadsheet because it gives you exactly to the dollar how much extra value you can add to the property. I designed these free spreadsheets to be really, really easy for everyone to be able to use. And it's my gift to you guys for being such awesome listeners and making this show so huge. So go to www.andrewbean.com.au. Download the free DIY cash flow kit today and start running numbers on commercial property like a pro. All right, back to the show. 
So you said that you had to do a DA for the mezzanine, obviously. Did you find mm-hmm. that getting that through council in a commercial in aspect was easier than residential in terms of the like, code accessible kind of stuff? About the same. We had good consultants. Like I really rely on having a good team around you that know how to get these things through. So yeah, just really relying on them much like I would with a subdivision and a town planner and those that are communicating with council. So yeah, probably, I think it took about three months, I suppose, to get it through. Needed some body corporate approval as well. It was probably one extra thing, but that was just paperwork in the end. There was no issue with us doing that. And then getting a drawing done and submitting it to council and needed some traffic reports and a few other things involved. But again, it's just, I just find it's, you become a, a generalist across multiple facets in the deal, not an expert and you engage the experts to do that work for you, as long as you've got some good trust there in in who they are, you're really just making sure things are moving forward in a timely fashion so that your holding costs aren't getting chewed up. So, yeah, I didn't find it too different, really, going between the two. I guess it was just didn't quite know what to expect with the process, so you're kind of just feeling your way through it and getting good feedback from the consultants, knowing that, yeah, this will be accepted or whatever the council's looking for, we can provide. But ultimately, yeah, it was pretty straightforward. Fantastic. And did you have to provide additional parking for the increased space? Because usually when you put a mezzanine in, you have mm. to be able to give them more parking, even though they might not be using it to actually have an office, even if it's a mezzanine just for storage space, you actually have to provide more parking. No, it didn't have to. And it's a good point because it didn't come up. The shed had two car parks allocated to it. So that was all laid out already. And yeah, they didn't request for that. We did have to do a traffic report around that, but I didn't see why we needed to do that. But we just ticked those boxes as we went. But it didn't come up, no, thankfully. Good stuff. (laughs) And so with the actual mezzanine, how did you cost that out? Did you have someone actually quote the job before you actually purchased it during your due diligence period? Yeah, we had a builder already. The colleague that I was working with, he'd done a similar thing before. So he had knew exactly what he wanted. And it was fairly similar. So we just engaged him straight away. He was able to quote up on the job based on the previous project that he did. So we knew what we were up for. And yeah, he was great. We just got in and done it, managed the trades for us. And we just made sure that the cash flow was there to get it done. And so with the actual contract you offer, for people that might not already know about commercial property, commercial property is a little bit different in the sense where you have a due diligence period in your contract where you can basically reserve the right to check everything that the seller has been telling you is correct before you actually go unconditional. Did you have a due diligence period? You said that your partner was still pretty knowledgeable on commercial property already. We would have had something, but there wasn't a whole lot of DD to be done. It was just making sure, okay, we could get that mezzanine in. I honestly can't remember. I'd have to look up the contract because we were replicating something we'd done in the past, albeit in a different complex. So I can't remember, but generally I would always have a get out clause. So there must have been some finance or DD just to give us a bit of leeway. But then again, we might have gone in a bit harder given that we got a good price and negated that. You always have some sort of DD clause in there. So you've got that time to reassess and pull out if you need to. Yeah. And why do you think that the developer was like basically leaving money on the table by not putting this mezzanine in himself? Like it's a fair bit of cash that he's left on the table. Yeah, I guess this was the smaller one. If I look at the other units that were there, he seemed to probably did it on six of them. And there was different types of units in there. There was more sort of office warehouse units and trade store kind of units, some with frontage, some without. So I don't know. He's probably made some good coin in developing the site as it is. 
I think it just felt like that particular unit was his main concern. He saw it as the worst one in the block and we saw it as the best one. So he was happy to sort of let it go just to start getting some sales through because we were probably one of the first ones, one of the first sale. I think they'd sold two before us and it was just a little bit slow. So, yeah, I don't know. We actually looked at it afterwards and thought, okay, next time we do this, let's be the developer. I'd rather be building 10 of these and selling off five and holding five. That would have been worthwhile. Holding one and making 20K a year shared with a JV partner wasn't really interesting enough for us, but holding five and earning 100, that'd be more worthwhile. So we went back to the agent that, that actually brought the deal to us and we've got a good relationship with and started looking at sites to replicate the strategy of the developer. And that's when land started going up. So everything we looked at just didn't stack. So we'll probably go back to that strategy. We've got some other things on the boil now, but it's still something that I would like to pursue because it just seems very simple. You know, the, the actual construction is pretty straightforward. Of course, it all works on the numbers. So you've got to get the right block of land and the right purchase price in the beginning for it to all flow through. And we just didn't get that. There wasn't anything that was suitable. Um, we explored probably five or six different sites. Everything just boomed and went a bit out of control, which is great yeah. for the property we're holding, but not to get into another development site. Yeah, fair enough. So what actual year was this that you did this development or this property? I think it was like March 2021, I think, that we bought it and then sold it earlier this year in 2022. Yeah, so it would have been June 2022, I think it settled. Yeah, well, it sounds like you probably timed the market extremely well just before interest rates started going up and people are starting mm. to get a lot, of, a lot of fear in the market now. So it seems like you had good timing on your side. Yeah, well, that, and that's the thing. You've got to acknowledge that. I mean, yeah, we did really well, but some of the market did the heavy lifting. So it's important not to get big ego about it that we, hey, we made this much money. A strategy was always going to work. But yeah, we timed it right at the same time. Still would have done the deal without that market uplift because we didn't put that into the fees. It was just cream on the top. I think we sold it in a really good time. I don't think you'd get that same sort of number now that we did even just a few months ago. Yeah, I agree. So, mate, you are the master of JVs at this point in my mind. You said that you did get a JV going into the property. You also had a money partner for the refurbishment. What kind of percentage is like a realistic price or a realistic percentage that you would have to go in and have and offer that to someone coming into your deal for them to get really interested in a deal? The rate is based on the risk. So what sort of security you're providing for those funds? That's the first thing to look at. Um, so in this case, it was 12% return on their money. So if they had the 100K in there for 12 months, they'd earn $12,000 secured with a, a second mortgage over that property or another property and then a loan agreement to go with that, sometimes with a personal guarantee. So the funds are really well secured. More importantly, the people that are involved, I find, is is really important. So when you're doing a JV, the thing that I've learned over the years is you do more due diligence on the people involved than the deal itself. I used to think, I've got the deal, you've got the money, great, let's hook up and make a million bucks. That often happens, but sometimes... It doesn't, and it usually comes back to not spending enough time understanding the person and their personality and the way they communicate and their risk profile. So you want to choose well with who you're working with in that space and making sure that they have a good understanding of what's happening and the risks involved and what their expectations are in profit and timeframes. And then you have a really good experience. You build these long-term relationships with people that have funds, that want to be on your journey, that want to make money with you. It's a really pleasant experience then. You end up doing multiple projects for as long as you want. 
and they kept coming back to do more and more. So yeah, the JV with Brendan, that was a 50-50 split and we'd done projects together before and we had a lot of trust in each other. Very much a win-win problem-solving focus so that if there is or when there's curveballs, there was something with every deal that challenges you. You can communicate well through it and find an outcome together. And then the money partner, same thing. You know, Someone that had worked with us before, they had some trust in what we did. We communicated well. They were quite happy to put the 100K in and get a return for that. And that saved us from having to put our own money in a deal. We just see that it allows us to have the opportunity cost of, of our funds ready to go for the next project. Yeah, beautiful. And so would you pay them in a monthly return for that? Or was it just when the actual project was sold? Yeah, in this case, it was just at the end of the project. Um, they were comfortable with that. But yeah, there's varying ways of doing it. A lot of deals I see that come through our network now, people are offering 12% on the funds paid monthly, so effectively 1% per month, or they'll get a little bit more if they wait to the end of the project. So they might offer 15% on the money, but you get that at the end of the deal. So the funding partner gets to choose, okay, do I want the cash flow along the way or do I want to wait to the end and get a little bit more return on my money? It's really about just being flexible and making sure all parties are comfortable. It can range. You can go up to 18, 20% return if there's less security in the deal, or maybe it's a really short time frame. You got to make it worthwhile. Like if you're putting in 100K and you're getting 15% return, but it was only three months, it's kind of not worth getting out of bed for. It's not worth the hassle of getting the legal advice and going through the paperwork and for a few thousand bucks. You kind of got to make it, like you were saying before, making it attractive to the funding part, but also fit within their risk profile. They're comfortable with the time frame and the set return and the security involved. Everyone's comfortable moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I really love the JV mindset and actually being able to get further forward using other people's money. I've actually set up self-storage syndication business. Okay. So, mate, overall, I, mean, I guess you kind of use the development kind of mindset with this particular deal. What was the one metric that you use to basically determine if it was a good deal? Like what percentage was cash on cash, profit on cost? There's a few different ways you could have looked Mm. at it. Yeah, normally I'll use the profit on costs formula with any deal that I'm looking at and getting that to 20% if you're getting in, adding value and getting out again. This one was a bit different. Cash on cash, obviously, as well. But in this sense, there was no cash down. So effectively, it was an infinite cash on cash return. Yeah best. So, yeah, I should put just $1 in and see what that ended up as the cash and cash return. It's funny in this one, I didn't go through the same process. Like normally, yeah, I'd have a feasibility, all the costs in there, what the expected net income would be, what the profit on cost is at the end, and then start playing with the variables from there. But this one, it was very much, I like to look at the exit. So I like to look at it and go, what's the exit point? The exit point is we stick a tenant in there and we hold it. That's kind of an exit. Or we add the value and we sell it. So I like to look at it from the seller point of view because that's the way to get out. And if something happened to Brendan or something happened to me or the market, that's how we're getting out. And so from every way we looked at it, there was always going to be a profit adding this mezzanine. That was the key to making it work. So as long as we could do that and have it approved and get it done at the right cost point, it was always going to make money. And then the worst case scenario was just have a tenant in there and hold it positively geared, which wasn't such a bad thing. So as far as the formula, normally it would be profit on cost for me, but in this case, it was, what's the profit in the end? Because we knew it was no money down. What are we actually going to get out of this? 100K each, 50K each? And then that was enough for me to go, yeah, that's a good deal. But these days, yeah, I tend to look at, Steve always used to say, how much down, how much back, how much time, how much risk? And so answering those four key things. And then there's a fifth one, how much 
hassle. That's a big one. Real one. That's a big one. That's a big one. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the early days, when you're just trying to get going, you're like, it's all hassle, and that's part of the deal. You just get in and make it work and make money, and you're trying to build this development business. But yeah, once you get further along and you define more around what you're doing it for, what's the why behind everything, it becomes more about, okay, how much hassle is in this deal? Okay, what if we want to go overseas for a couple of years again? I'm not going to be able to manage this deal from over there. So it's probably not a good idea, even though it's really profitable. It just doesn't suit our lifestyle right now. So yeah, you start to make different choices outside of the return. Obviously, the deal's got to stack up, number one. You know, that's pretty obvious. But what else is involved? How much time is required of me? How much skill is required? What other components do I need to bring to the deal? And then am I going to have a good time? Can I manage this with the workload that I've got already? What have I got planned in the next 12 months? And kind of make it fit around that. What was the actual profit that you made between the two of you? 220 between the two. Clear profit from buying clear what profit. Yep. $275,000 warehouse. And, and putting yeah. what was it, a seventy thousand dollar mezzanine in it? Yeah, that's right. So it was about bought it for two seventy five. There was fourteen in holding costs. Mezzanine construction was seventy five. Hold costs was about eleven. It kind of worked out about three seventy five. So the purchase two seventy five plus the costs was another hundred. So three seventy five, and then sold it for six fifteen. And then there was some agent comms to play with there, legals. So yeah, it worked out pretty much two twenty between the two of us that we just split 50-50. It sounds like it was a pretty ripper deal, <laughs> if I don't say myself. Like how, how long was the time frame on this? Like was it 12 months? It was probably just over 12 months settlement to settlement. So we didn't own it until about, I think it was like, yeah, here it is. So March 2021 is when we got it under contract. I don't think it settled until April, May 21. And then it settled on June 2022, so probably just over 13 months by the look of it. Yeah, 13 or 14 months. Fantastic. I mean, if, uh, if you could do that every time, you'd be absolutely laughing. So I guess my next question comes to you is, would you do it again? Which I already know the answer to, but would you do it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. If the opportunity's there, for sure. Loved it. I mean, we've got other projects on the go as well so it's just sort of maintaining that balance of time and funding capacity although with jvs you kind of become unlimited once you've got a network of funding partners there's there's i just find any deal that stacks up should never go unfunded my motto these days there's just too many ways to get there's heaps of money out there there's heaps of ways to get it and to create these win-win outcomes with people never happen i missed out on that deal because the bank said no or something it's like wow okay there's other ways. It's not just saving 20% and borrowing 80 from the bank anymore. There's just so many ways of doing it. But it's, I guess it's not mainstream either. So it's just about educating yourself on that space so that you can have confidence in the contract you put forward. When you see a site that stacks, you know you can get it funded. Like there's always a way as long as the numbers work in the first place. Yeah, that's right. I love this. This is excellent. So, mate, I wanted to kind of move the topics to actually going on to talk about your property networking group, which is, I believe, is the largest property networking group in Brisbane currently. I just want to know, how did you get that started? Yeah. Like, how long has it been running? It seems like it's been, you know, an excellent journey for you. Yeah, it's been phenomenal, that group. It's been going for 15 years now. That literally started with just 10 people. Came from when I did the results program with Steve in Melbourne. So I'd fly down there every quarter. So I just got the Brisbane contingency of that program and just said, hey guys, you know, we're all in Brisbane. 
we're all flying down to Melbourne every three months. Let's hook up and go out to dinner and see if we can help each other out. And so we did that. And then we just met up next month and we started holding at people's houses and it just kind of grew word of mouth. All of a sudden we'd have 50 people in someone's lounge room once a month and it was getting like, okay, I think we need a venue here. And it was just literally getting together, helping each other with referrals or people were doing different strategies and just providing that space for people to be comfortable and learn from each other. And yeah, these days there's like 7,000 in the group now. We still hold it every month. There's about 100 or so that come along every month to that group usually 30 to 50% newbies, new attendees come every month. So it's always growing, but it's still the same group. Like it's still that support group. Uh, It's got a bit more structure to it now. Like we have some sponsors involved and we record it. There's a membership site that you can be a part of to go with it. But essentially it's still the same group we had when it was in the lounge room. You know, it hasn't turned into some self-est or there's no hidden agenda behind it. We just really tried to keep it in the way it was, it's just a bit bigger now. It's not 10 people as, you know, there's 100 people in the room, but there's just so much value for everyone that's there because you can be anyone, you know, you can be at any skill level, you can be doing any strategy and know that you can come to that space and feel supported. Someone called it the AA for property investors a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, because like it's different, like what we're doing is different and you don't always get the support from your partner or your friends or your family. So it's a place you can go to and actually share with others, hey, this is what I'm doing or this is what I need help with. or And at the same time, learn. There's three presentations every month and it's always obviously property related, like a town planner or a solicitor or a finance expert or a real estate agent. And then someone presenting their own project as well. There's always a case study each month. So that's usually the bit that everyone enjoys the most because you see someone get up, you know, everyday person that's uh, got a full-time job and they're doing this side hustle like a subdivision or a development or a reno and they share the numbers and the challenges and what went right what went wrong and it's great you know it's just really inspiring to see people get up and share what they're doing in the current market it's quite real and yeah so that that provides a bit of structure and then yeah we just spend a couple of hours together and talk about property and so many relationships have been formed from that mm. and it's the reason we still run it 15 years on is because we get the same benefit as everyone else showing up you know we get to meet new people and hear about different strategies and learn about different things people are doing. Sometimes there's some JV opportunities in there as well. So yeah, we just show up every month and and I just facilitate it. Honestly, I get the same benefit as everyone else. Just the networking is just so, so powerful. Everything we've done in property, every consultant, it's all come from that group. It's just quite amazing. feel very grateful to be a part of it. Yeah, I remember back when I was doing your course, I remember watching all of the meetup groups and I thought they were fantastic at the time, being that I was kind of cutting my teeth as well. It's really beneficial to see all the different strategies and going through the trials and tribulations and even people would be getting up there and showing you how they failed. So it's like, you know, you learn more from the failures than the successes. Even Brandon Nichols, I actually interviewed him. So he's going to be on the podcast as well, talking about mindset and his journeys. Yeah, he's great. Like he's been in the game for so long and just the strategies are one thing. You've got to be working on your mindset as well because it's all, some say it's 100% mindset with this stuff. Like the strategies aren't rocket science. It's learn how to do commercial deal or a subdivision or whatever. Anyone can learn how to do that. But it's the blockages that we have, getting it wrong or feeling silly about it. You know, that's the stuff that you've got to work on. And yeah, Brendan is a bit of a master with that. It all goes hand in hand. Yeah, that's right. So your meetup group's actually kind of more focused on residential property development 
How did they receive the commercial development? Did you present that one to them? Yeah, I did. I mean, yeah, it is probably more geared toward residential because it's sort of beginner to intermediate investors coming along. So that's sort of where most start. But there's also some really sophisticated people there too. I guess that's the beauty of it. You know, we can all be in the same room together and there's no sort of intimidation or anything around that. Everyone's just on their own journey and every strategy is accepted for what it is. We're all trying to make money out of this and get a life. So whether it's commercial or residential doesn't really matter. I guess it's just been more residential that's been presented. But there have other be I think there has been one or two commercial stuff things that have been presented or that they've been a sub strategy of something else. So yeah, there's no bias. I'm happy to have any sort of variety out front because I think it's the process people learn from. And it might just spark an idea for somebody else that they can apply. And that's really what it's about, just sharing that journey with people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, today's been an absolutely awesome chat, man. I've got my last question here. Where can the listeners go to find out more about you and all of your property courses and pretty much everything you do? Yeah, yeah. Uh, propertyresourceshop.com. That's our main website. There's about 150 blogs on there that you can read through. Some stuff about our journey and our France adventure is on there. Some cool tools that you can download there. There's some good info about the networking group meetups, the property launch pad, which is a three-day event that we do specifically around joint venturing. Info on that. There's a membership site you can be a part of. Yeah, it's a great online community that I really like to interact with. And there's associated Facebook groups that go with that, that I tap into and do some live Q&As and that sort of thing. But yeah, propertyresourceshop.com, that's the hub of everything. That's how you can contact me or access to some of the free and paid resources. Fantastic, mate. Today's guest has been Matt Jones. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for your time, mate. That's the end of another great show. I'd like to thank my guest today, and Kevin McLeod for the music. Don't forget to check out my new website, www.andrewbean.com.au for all of the awesome new ways that I can help you with your commercial property journey. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.